glory to God in the highest heaven, and on peace, and on earth peace among those whom he favors. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in a manger. When they saw this, they had made known what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned and glorified, glorifying and praising God for well, for they had heard and seen and had it been told to them. This is the word of our Lord. Well, during these weeks of Advent, we have been thinking about Christ being born not just in a galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago, but here and now and in each of our lives. And so we've asked God to give us the gift of faith that he gave Mary, the gift of courage that he gave to Joseph, the hope he gave to the wise men, and today we are going to take our place uh, alongside the shepherds, and we're going to look at their humility, and then it will culminate on Friday with a father's love. So today, I invite you to take your place alongside the shepherd dudes uh, for the morning. At the heart of Christmas is a paradox. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is when there are two things that seem to be contradictory or opposite or absurd, but more you lean into it, you see that they can actually be true. Here's how the Oxford Dictionary defines it. A seemingly absurd or contradictory statement or a proposition, which when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. Um, perhaps maybe the most famous um, paradox from ancient philosophy comes from Socrates who said, I know one thing, that I know nothing. So there's a paradox. Here's some other paradoxes. Um, the working vacation, that's a paradox, right? Or um, alone together, that's, we experienced that during the pandemic, that kind of a paradox. Is it possible to be alone together? Or how about this one, the short sermon? <laughs> yeah, paradox or maybe just a contradiction of terms, I don't know. But only, uh, not only do we experience paradoxes in everyday life, but um, the Christian tradition is filled with paradoxes. There are paradoxes in the Bible and paradoxes in our own spiritual lives. Let's take a look at um, just a sampling of paradoxes from the New Testament, not that you can read that font, but uh, here are a few paradoxes. Do you want to live? You must die. Do you want to save your life? You must lose it. Do you want to be strong? Then boast about your weakness. Do you want to be rich? You must become poor in spirit. Do you want to be first? Then be last. Do you want to be exalted? Then be willing to be brought low. Do you wish to be great? You must be willing to become a servant. Do you want to be the greatest? Be willing to be the least. Do you want to rule? Then serve. Do you want to be fruitful? You must die. Maybe the, the most poignant uh, 
paradox from the Bible comes from 1 Corinthians. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. If you're paying attention, there are paradoxes all around us, and part of Christian maturity or growing in Christ is learning to accept and receive paradoxes and not to uh, choose one or the other, but to lean into them. When it comes to the Christmas story, what could be more absurd than the story that Deanne just read so well a few moments ago? Think about it. An announcement that a king is going to be born, and this is not just any king, right? If you were to hear this message in the first century in that context, you would think, oh my goodness, a king, this king is to be born. I can only imagine the palace that he's going to be born into, right? I mean, King Herod had some amazing palaces, but certainly they would be nothing compared to this king's palace. And certainly when this king is to be born, they will wrap this king, this baby king, in the finest of linens. Maybe the finest silk in the entire world would be uh, just for this baby king. And when they put this baby king into a crib, it's not going to certainly be a junky little crib. It's going to be made of gold and adorned with the finest of jewels, right? But instead, the eternal king is born in a place more like this, a stable, a dirt floor, a feeding trough for a bed. I heard someone in the uh, Sunday school class say, you can imagine Joseph uh, getting rid of manure, sweeping manure out of the way to lay the king of the universe down in a stable. Seemingly absurd, yet possibly true. So at the heart of Christmas, in Jesus, we have this paradox. We have a humble ruler, a servant king, and the God who is also human. How can this be? Doesn't it have to be one or the other? Listen to how Richard Rohr talks about the role of paradox. The centrality of paradox in the Christian life and the Christian tradition as found in Jesus and then how that mat what, why that matters for our lives as well. This is how he put it. He said, a paradox is something that initially looks like a contradiction, but if you go deeper with it and hold it longer or at a different level, it isn't necessarily so. Holding out for a reconciling third, a tertium quid, he says, allows a very different perspective and gives a very different pair of eyes beyond either, either or. Notice that Jesus, in many classic icons, is usually holding up two fingers. If you've seen these icons, you can Google it. It kind of, he'll hold up two fingers like this, as if to say, I am holding this seeming contradiction together in my one body. Jesus is the living paradox, which frankly confounds and disturbs most of us. Normally, humans identify with one side of any seeming contradiction. For Jesus to be totally human would logically cancel out the possibility that he is also totally divine. 
And here's where it matters for our lives. For us to be grungy human beings would cancel out that we are children of God. So the same reconciliation needs to take place in my soul. I have to know that I am a son of earth and a son of heaven. You have to know that you are a daughter of God and a daughter of earth at the same time. And the two do not cancel each other out. And so part of growing in spiritual maturity is learning uh, not to eliminate paradox, but learning to accept it, to lean into it. Let's look at some of the absurdity from our story today and see if we can draw a few lessons for our own lives. In today's passage, the angels declare, to you is born in this city of David a Savior, the Lord. And when we hear that, we appropriately ap apply it to us. We say, okay, to us um, is born this day in the city of David a Savior. But before we get to application, we have to do interpretation. And the interpretation is that there is a narrow sense in which the angels are speaking. And we have to look at the narrow sense before we universalize it to all of us. And the narrow sense is that the angels are literally speaking to these shepherds. And because we look back and we think, oh, shepherds, we think of these cute Christmas stories, the magi and their gifts and the cute shepherd and their sheep. And, and, and we, we kind of look back with nostalgia and we, we kind of look at shepherds more like this. Um, how cute, how cuddly, and we think, well, this is lovely. Let's, let's get a petting zoo in the church parking lot. We'll bring all the children out to see all the animals in the, in the petting zoo, except for there were no petting zoos in the first century, and there were no tranquilizer guns to keep the children safe. These were dirty, grimy, wild, mean animals, and, uh, and we would be wise not to romanticize the story. Uh, here is what a shepherd looks like in that part of the world, in today's world. Not much has changed in the, in the field of shepherding um, in thousands of years. It's not like medicine. They're, they're out there. It, it was one of the lowest, least educated, least significant positions with the lowest status possible. And only when we hear the shocking absurdity of the paradox that the angels would entrust the message of eons to these grimy shepherds, only then are we able to enter into the story and hear it the way that it's meant to be heard and told. And so we have to ask ourselves, why the shepherds? Why these shepherds? Well, the short answer is that the shepherds were the least likely to miss it to miss the miracle, to miss the message. Here's how Max Lucado put it. He said, they didn't ask God, the shepherds, that is, they didn't ask God if he was sure of what he was doing. Had the angel gone to the theologians, they would have first consulted their commentaries. Had he gone to the elite, they would have looked around to see if anyone was watching. Had he gone to the successful, they would have first looked at their calendars. So he went to the shepherds, men who didn't have a reputation to protect or an axe to grind or a ladder to climb, 
men who didn't know enough to tell God that angels don't sing to sheep and that messiahs aren't found wrapped in rags. He came to the shepherds. And I know that it's true for, for me that sometimes I misinterpret the truth that, that God will meet us where we are. God meets me right where I'm at. And I take that a little bit too far and expect that to mean that God will come on my terms. God will not come on our terms. And that's why he would come to the shepherds. The shepherds didn't have any terms. God will meet us where we are, but he will not come on our terms. And I know in my own experience that it's not the rich who miss Christmas. It's not the poor who miss Christmas. It's the proud. It's the ones who are unwilling to take their place, their lowly place, alongside the shepherds because we expect God to come and to meet our expectations and to conform. So God came to the shepherds. Well, why would God come to the shepherds? Because they would receive it. But what, why would God come in himself in such a lowly way? Why would he himself choose to be born in a stable? Here's what uh, fourth century theologian Theodotus uh, wrote. I know you all have Theodotus memorized. Um, I don't, so uh, let's just read it together. Uh, if Jesus had been born to high rank amidst luxury, unbelievers would have said the world had been transformed by wealth. If he had chosen as his birthplace the great city of Rome, they would have thought the transformation had been brought about by civil power. Suppose he had been the son of an emperor. They would have said how useful it is to be powerful. But in fact, what did he do? He chose surroundings that were poor and simple, so ordinary as to be almost unnoticed, so that the people would know that it was God alone who changed the world. God came to the shepherds so that we would know that it was truly him. There's a famous uh, story you may have heard um, that's told oftentimes this, this time of year. I'm going to share it, kind of read it to you. Um, it's written by the Danish, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. It's a, it's a beautiful story. It's about a king who fell in love with a maiden. There was once a king who loved a humble maiden. This king was of uncommon royal lineage. He was king above kings with power and might to make all others humble before him. None dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all who opposed him. The wealth of his holdings was unfathomable. Tribute arrived on a daily basis from lesser kings who hoped to gain his favor. And yet this mighty king was melted for, by love for a humble maiden who lived in the poorest village in his entire vast kingdom. He longed to go to this maiden and announce his love for her. But here arose the king's dilemma, how to declare his love. Certainly, he could appear before her resplendent in his royal robes and surrounded with the royal guard, ready to carry away her in a carriage inlaid with gold and precious stones. He could bring her to the palace and crown her head with jewels and clothe her in the finest of silks. She would surely not resist this type of proposal. 
for no one dared to resist the king. But would she love him? She might say she loved him. She might be awed by his royal splendor and tremble at the thought of being blessed by such an amazing opportunity. She might tell herself that she would be foolish to reject such a marriage proposal. But would she love him? Or would she go through the motions all the while living a life of empty duty, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she love him or regret the moment of being face to face with the overwhelming grandeur of the king? Or would she be happy at his side, loving him for himself and not for his title or his riches or his power? The king did not want a wife who behaved as a subject of his royal decrees, cringing at his word and unwilling to do anything but agree with all he said and did. Instead, he wanted an equal, a queen whose love knew no restrictions or limitations. He wanted an equal whose voice would speak to him at all times without hesitation. Love with his beloved maiden must mean equality with her. He wanted a relationship with the woman that had neither barriers nor walls in which she was not a king and she was not a poor subject of the crown. The love shared between them and his desire would cross the chasm that threatened to forever keep them apart, bringing the king and peasant together, making the unequal equal. In short, he wanted the maiden to love him for himself and not for any other reason. And so he had to find a way to, to win the maiden's love without overwhelming her and without destroying her free will to choose. The king realized that to win the maiden's love, he had only one choice. He had to become like her without power or riches and without the title of king. Only then would she be able to see, himself, see him simply for who he was and not for wh what his position made him. He had to become her equal, and to do that, he must leave all that he had. Great risk, because she could reject him. But one night, after all, within the castle were asleep, he laid aside his golden crown and removed his rings of state. He took off his royal robes of silk and linen and redressed himself in the common clothes of the poorest in the kingdom. Leaving by the way of the servants' quarters, he, the king left his crown, his castle, and his kingdom behind. As the next day's sun rose in the east, the maiden emerged from her humble cottage to find herself face to face with a stranger, a common man with kindly eyes who requested an opportunity to speak with her and in time to court her for her hand in marriage. Is this not what the king of the universe has done for us in Jesus Christ? We are the humble maiden and in order that we would love God, he would come to be one of us, to be like us, trading his crown of glory for a crown of thorns. He traded his royal robes for rags. 
He traded his royal palace for a feeding trough, and he traded his royal scepter for a shepherd's staff. And his raggedness then became the signature of God's presence with us. David Jeremiah, he put it like this. He said, in David, God made a shepherd into a king. In Jesus, he made a king into a sacrificial lamb. Later, then, Jesus would go on to say the most absurd thing. He would say, I am the good shepherd, and I will lay down my life for my sheep. Seemingly absurd, yet possibly true. The angels went to the shepherds because they were lowly enough, humble enough to receive it. Jesus then becomes the good shepherd who lays down his life and his status for his sheep. And those who want to be great in the kingdom must take their place alongside the shepherds, humbling ourselves, laying down our status to lift another up. I'll close with this story you might have heard. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a Virgin Atlantic flight from New York to London. And there were two people on this flight who didn't know each other. They were strangers, Jack and Violet. And they struck up a conversation at the gate prior to boarding. And they um, got to know one another a little bit and kind of became friendly with one another. And it became time to board the plane. And Jack and his family boarded first because he, you know, had first class status. And so he boarded the plane, the family boarded the plane, and he put his bag down wherever it was supposed to go in those first-class cabins. Um, and then maybe, I don't know, 27 hours later, Violet gets to board the plane. Um, and, and her ticket, of course, is in row 546 in the back of the plane by the laboratories. And so she boards the plane and uh, walks by Jack and says hello, Jack waves, and she makes her way back to her seat. About five minutes later, Jack got up out of his seat, grabbed his bag, walked to the back of the plane, and exchanged his first-class ticket for Viola's, Violet's uh, seat. And the flight attendant said this. She said, he then sat with a big smile on his face, on the row of seats directly next to the economy toilets and never made a peep or asked anything uh, for the rest of the flight. No fuss, no attention, literally did it out of the kindness of his own heart. No one asked him to. Violet was 88 years old. She'd been a nurse in both the UK and in America and she would travel to New York to see her daughter, but she hadn't been able to do that for some time because of a knee replacement uh, that she needed. Her dream was always to one day get to sit in the front of the airplane, and Jack made that come true. The flight attendant said, you should have seen her face when I tucked her in bed after supper. Here's a picture of Jack and Violet. He knew his status and he knew how to use it. The king of the universe knows his status, and in Jesus Christ, he knew how to use it in order to win our love for him. Do you know your status? 
as a citizen of heaven, as a child of the eternal God? And do you know how to use your status? When people miss Christmas, it's not because they don't know enough of the story. It's not because they haven't been good enough last year. It's not even because they don't have enough faith. When people miss Christmas, it's because they are unwilling to take the lowly place. Because that's where Christ was born. Seemingly absurd, yet possibly true. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that you will help us to know our place in your story, both as children of the Heavenly Father and also as children of earth with all of its temptations and all of its complications and all of our stumbling and struggles. God, humble us, we pray. And we pray that you would give us the courage to humble ourselves, that we might take our place alongside the shepherds to be open-hearted enough to see you coming into the world. And may we, with our status, lay ourselves down as the good shepherd laid down his life for us, that we might lift others up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.